Hey everyone, before we get into today's interview, I wanted you all to know that Saturday, May 13th from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m., there will be a massive Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month celebration and tennis festival. Join us at Cunningham Tennis Center in Queens for free food, free tennis, and special appearances. Make sure you register at the link in the show notes so we know you're coming and come out, enjoy the day, and bring the entire family. Hello, and welcome to Tennis Stories. I'm your host, Anisha Boston-Hill, NJTL Strategic Partnerships and Events, for USTA Eastern. So everyone has a tennis story, and on this podcast, we're interviewing some interesting folks in our USTA section, and to hear what it is about the sport that takes us from enjoying it as a hobby to an all-out obsession. My guest today is former number three, world number three doubles player and two-time Grand Slam doubles champion, Vanya King. Vanya, welcome to Tennis Stories, and thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you. I mean, you are just really a part of the USTA family, and we're just going to jump right into it, if that's okay with you. Of course. So right at the top of the show, I wanted to make sure folks knew that you are going to be on site at the Asian American and Pacific Islander Teen Festival happening in Queens on May 13th. How excited are you? And can you tell us a little bit more about the event? Yes, for sure. I am uh, incredibly excited. Uh, the Api community is obviously one that's near and dear to my heart. My parents are immigrants from Taiwan. Um, I have a special connection to New York. Um, my partner and I won the US Open in 2010. So um, one of my best memories of my life is being in New York and being in Queens. Um, so very excited to be back in the area and back supporting my community. I do wanna note that the event will have free food, uh, cultural dances and a special tennis exhibition featuring myself and Christy Ahn, who's also a former professional player. She was top 100. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, Vanya, we can't wait to taste all the good food and, of course, see the amazing tennis. Um, everyone out there, if you want to register and come out on May 13th at Cunningham Tennis Center in Queens, the registration link is in the show notes. Let us know that you're coming and we will um, look out for you. So, all right now, let's go, get right into it, Vanya. Tell us, um, when did you pick up your tennis racket? Like, were you a tiny tot or, <laughs> you know, a little bit older in age? Uh, so I was a tiny tot. There's footage of me holding and, and hitting a tennis ball when I was a year and a half. Um, I'm the youngest of four. So my brother's about eight years older than I am. So he's the one who started the tennis journey. And then my sisters and I, the three little girls followed in his footsteps. Um, and then you know, just played a lot with my sisters. I grew up in SoCal in Long Beach in California, um, played a lot with my sisters. Our dad was our coach. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, my parents realized that I had potential and they thought, you know, this might be a, a potential job <laughs> job for me. I mean, my dad would tell people that I was gonna be number one in the world, which was uh, very ambitious. Um, 
And yeah, I just, I found my love for the sport at a very young age. That's so cool. And it's great to find out that, you know, hear your story and find out that it was really more of a family collaboration because we hear more and more of that, you know, every time we speak to someone in our tennis stories, uh, on our tennis stories podcast. So that's really fantastic. Um, now, did you play lots of sports um, when you were growing up or was it just like super laser focused on tennis? Um, so when I was younger, I would say younger than 10 for sure. My mom was the one who really thought it'd be beneficial for my sisters and I to engage in a lot of different activities. So um, I remember, you know, between the seven days of the week, we had something every day. So we had tennis, singing, Chinese dance, swimming, um, piano, Saturday Chinese school and Sunday church. So every day of the week, we were busy with some type of activity. And then as we got older, some of the things we started weeding off of, you know, whether it was because we just weren't as interested in it or we became more interested in other activities that we wanted to focus on. And then I would say by about 12, I really started focusing on tennis. That's a great age for tennis. You know, you, you hear about all of our JTT you know, tournament players, and um, that seems to be when they really fall in love with the sport. Is that when you fell in love? Um, I would say that I, in a way, always loved being competitive. Um, I don't know if I, at that age, really recognized that I loved the sport. Um, so, I mean, I was a kid, so I'd loved a lot of different things. You know, think, mm -hmm. there were other things that were also interesting to me, but I was very competitive. I was good at it, which was which meant I could win. <laughs> so <laughs> I loved winning. Um, being Tennis is a great sport because you don't have to be a certain physical stature. So I'm quite small for a professional tennis player. So I was able to utilize um, certain skills that, may not cross over to other sports. Whereas, you know, let's say in running, you know, you probably have to be quite tall and strong. And, and in tennis, I could use, let's say, hand-eye coordination and intuition to combat like the physical prowess. Um, so I found tennis very interesting from that standpoint. No, that's great. And it's, I'm sure it was a great time for your family and your, you know, you to bond over the years and great memories overall. Yeah, and we grew up playing on public parks and public courts. Um, and I know that uh, that's where that's where community tennis is. You know, it's it's on public courts, it's on um, high school courts. So my parents didn't have a lot of money, and um, we really made do with what we had. And I think to those that are watching, you can definitely be successful even if you don't have a lot of money. Um, if you have the desire, the determination, there's a lot of resources out there like the USDA provides as well. Um, there's a lot of resources out there, even if you don't, let's say, you know, have everything out there for you all at once. Absolutely. And, you know, on the court or off the court, tennis can be a very humbling sport to play um, because the matches can change on the dime. You know, you talk about life changing. You know, our matches are, you know, really fast, really intense. Um, in what ways do you think tennis has impacted, um, had an impact on the person you are today? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I played so much tennis that I, frankly, I didn't want tennis to be my self-identity because I didn't want to be known as the tennis person and be bucketed into that identity, which 
I felt um, didn't encompass, you know, who I was. However, now I recognize that um, tennis has made me the person I am in in all ways. I mean, even from a physical standpoint, the way that my body has shaped. I mean, my bones became tougher because of all those years of of physical activity. Um, you know, even the way that my shoulder droops a little down because I <laughs> hit so many forehands. Um, you know, to internal characteristics like discipline, time management, um, and resilience, definitely. As you said, tennis is a difficult sport. There's a lot of shifts in momentum. Um, for us, as when, when I was playing professional, we were playing, you know, 25, 30 weeks of the year. And if you weren't winning every tournament, which it was very difficult to even just win one, you were losing every week. So, you know, it, it really... Um, it really creates a, a sense of, of resilience and um, the ability to bounce back is important. All right. That's awesome. And so when did you start developing your doubles game? Um, so I, my, I was coached by my dad when I was younger, up until I was about 17. And I was taught at that age, and I think it was also because we didn't have a lot of money. Um, if I played an event, I was going to play everything. So my dad said, okay, you know, if you're entered into a tournament, you're going to play all the events, you know, singles, doubles. If you lose, you're playing the backdraw. Um, all the opportunities that you could get, you were going to play. So that exposed me at a young age to playing doubles events. Um, I had a coach whose name is Ray Ruffles. He used to work with the USTA. He's originally from Australia and he coached the Woodies for those that are a little older out there. Uh, the Woodies were the number one doubles team in the world and arguably one of the best doubles teams in the world in history. And so my coach Ray coached them and he really instilled um, a lot of foundational principles. Uh, one being that singles helps doubles and doubles help singles. So playing tennis, going out in court and playing tennis helps you build tennis, regardless of whatever event you play. Um, but he was also there to give me advice on you know, strategy, um, obviously technique. Uh, and in doubles, it's much more of a it's much more of a strategic aspect than a physical aspect compared to singles. So um, kind of like a chess match, you are trying to trying to know or decipher where your opponent is playing and think a few steps ahead. And um, and a lot of that has to do with where you are in the match as well, because um, when pressure comes, people behave differently. So I found that really interesting. You talk about pressure. I mean, how did you deal with pressure at such a young age? Um, well, in <laughs> in many ways, I well, it was, it was never perfect. I had, uh, you know, on court, I choked. Definitely. And uh, I did as a pro and I still will, you know, even playing recreationally. Um, definitely exposure helps. So the more that you compete, the easier it gets. You know, you just become more desensitized to that pressure. Um, I would say putting the right work in so you can have confidence. You can let's say that you've lost a lot of confidence because you've lost, let's say three, four matches in a row. Um, unfortunately, the brain is very powerful and it can change a lot of as physical aspects to your game as well. Um, but 
you can put in a lot of work and then trust in the work that you've done. Um, and then I would say, you know, there's some things outside of the sport, you know, making sure that you recover well, that you have a good support system and that's a social network. There's, you know, self-care, you're engaging in activities that, um, that give you comfort. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to deal with pressure. Now, let's talk about those grand slams. <laughs> you know? So uh, we go from pressure. I mean, that is the ultimate pressure, you know, hot pocket, you know? Um, so for those of you who don't know out there, in 2010, Vanya King uh, won both the Wimbledon and U.S. Open women's double titles with her partner, so Vanya, pronounce her name for those, you know, for those people who are like me who have, you know, a challenge with saying some of the Russian names out there. Uh, Yaroslava Shvedova, and I've had many chances to practice it, so um, <laughs> some of the names are difficult to pronounce for sure. Um, yes, so Slava and I, I was 21 at the time in 2010, she was 23. Um, so in looking back in perspective to our whole careers, we were quite young still. And um, I would say cognitively developed also quite young. Um, in a way, it was, there was definitely a lot of pressure, but um, we really loved playing together. We had so much fun. Um, both of us had, fathers that were coaches, our coaches when we were young, and that put a lot of pressure on us. And so we were um, players that put more pressure on us. There was more internal pressure than external pressure. So things on the outside could not put more pressure than what we put on our own selves. So we both knew that going in. So really made sure that we were there for each other from an emotional standpoint, like don't worry, you know, we would talk to each other, like, don't worry, whatever happens, it doesn't matter. Um, not that we weren't trying at all, but it was because we actually played better if we were incredibly relaxed and in a way cared less because we cared so much that we would, we'd put too much pressure on ourselves and, and we'd get tight. Um, and uh, for Wimbledon, it was actually only our third time playing together. So usually teams take a couple of months to really be build that teamwork, um, just knowing each other's games, knowing each other's communication styles, just getting a little comfortable. Um, you know, it, it is a relationship, so it takes some time to get comfortable. Uh, so it was only our third event together. And um, I remember the week before she had her racket stolen at the train station. So she went to a local shop and bought two generic rackets and had just a little duffel bag that she was carrying on court. I <laughs> was, uh, sick for the fourth time that year and I was on antibiotics so a little woozy the whole time um so these things I mean it, it may not have helped our performance from a, a strictly you know a technical standpoint but from a psychological standpoint made us a little more relaxed you know we just said hey look there's so many things going on we can just do what we can do and have a lot of fun and um, that's what we did. US Open was a little different. There was more pressure because now there was expectation. We had one Wimbledon. There was more eyes on us thinking, okay, they are one of the favorites, if not the favorites to win. Um, also the warm-up tournaments leading up between Wimbledon and the US Open, we lost first round 
every every match. So we were a little worried going into US Open, um, but we rekindled the spark at the US Open. I think also Grand Slams have a, a longer format. You play the full three sets instead of a super tiebreak in the third set, which I preferred because sometimes in, in super tiebreaks, there's a little bit more luck that can be involved. So um, I think that also was to our benefit. Um, and yeah, I'm, like each match, we were we were also lucky at Wimbledon because the Williams sisters were on the other side of the draw and they lost in the quarterfinals to the girls that we eventually beat in the finals. And I would say that most likely if we played the Williams sisters in the finals, just from a standpoint of they've had so much experience being in that kind of pressure situation where we had not, like both part, both uh, teams had not been in the finals before. So it was like two newbies playing against each mm -hmm. other. So like whoever won was the first time. Um, and there's no pressure like a Grand Slam final pressure. So we were a little lucky in that regard. I think unless you're dominating like the Williams did for so long or like Roger Federer or Djokovic is now, um, you know, you have to be a little bit lucky um, to hopefully get those opportunities and then you have to rise up to the occasion. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. Now tell us a little bit about your game. What's your secret weapon on the court? Um, so it's a little bit of an unusual one. I would say that at my best, my return was one of the best shots that I had comparative to the tour. Um, I was a little player. So the, the downside is if I played a player with a really big serve that could hit the spots well, um, I didn't have a large wingspan, but besides that, and it's it's not easy for you know a player to hit hard enough and also hit the spots well. Um, I was taught at an early age to be very aggressive when I returned. So my dad, I mean, I remember I was like seven years old, and he would make me play against adult men, and he would have me stand halfway between the service line and the baseline to return their serves, which was kind of terrifying. Uh, but it forced me to be very aggressive on the returns, which I think paid off as I got older. A lot of tennis players talk about how it can be lonely on the tour as a professional tennis player. Did you ever feel that that way as a doubles player? I mean, it's different when you have someone almost connected to you as, at the hip. Um, yes and no. So I, uh, for most of my career, really all of my career, I played both singles and doubles. So I actually prioritized singles first and then doubles was second. For example, if I was playing uh, in the qualifying draw of a WTA event the next week, I may consider not playing doubles this week because the qualifying would be on the weekend. And if I did well in doubles, I wouldn't be able to make it or wouldn't be able to prep well enough for the qualifying in singles. So I didn't quite have the experience of a doubles, a player that just played doubles, because I imagine that if I did just play doubles, I would be at least out there with my partner and it would have been less lonely. Um, and you get to experience, you know, life on tour with somebody else. Um, but I would say even being a doubles player, it is also lonely, you know, unless you have a steady partner every single week of the whole year, which is sometimes difficult. You know, everyone plays um, different schedules, even if they're subtly different, you know, 
some might be some might want to be home a little more often some might want to focus on the bigger events some might not like to go to certain regions or certain um certain types of surfaces so i would say even being a doubles player and it has its own challenges um you know trying to find a steady partner may be difficult um you know trying to find a coach that might work with two players um versus just one uh, Frankly, the pay is not as good in doubles. So if you're just playing doubles, then there's more pressure to to perform. Um, so yeah, I would say both have its own challenges, but I would say if you were just playing doubles, it would, it would be less lonely. Now that, that's a lot, that's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I you deep into the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did, you did. Now, um, do you have any advice for juniors who have that dream of playing professionally one day? I mean, you won Wimbledon. You won a U.S. Grand Slam. I mean, what do you think, you know, a lot of the juniors are dreaming about? Or what advice would you give them? Um, so I would say, especially when you're young, I mean, it's not something you can do alone. It's something that you have to have a team that's around you. So at minimum, you need it's you know it's your coach and you, and that's assuming that your coach is going to take over fitness and recovery and take on a few different roles. So for you to become the best player that you can be, it really necessitates a team, and that means you know the parents, the coaches, the nutritionist, the fitness trainer, the physical therapists—they're all on board. And again depending on how much resources you have, some people might put take on a few different hats. Um, so everyone being on the same page, being communicative that, um, you know, if, if the player is feeling good or if they're feeling bad, that they feel like they can speak. Um, I think a lot of times, especially when players are younger, um, coaches might not let them speak or might overrule them. And, that might be okay when kids are really young, um, but as they develop in their own game and their own career, you know, they need to take ownership because at the end of the day, the goal is for them to be out on court and to be independent and figure it out by themselves. Like the, there's a support system around them. There's some little things that the coach or the team can do, but once they're out on court, it really is up to them. So I'd say, you know, making sure that there's a solid team, even if it's small and they're really working together well and there's respect on all sides, even if, um, you know, you're working with a kid because a kid is still smart and they're still responsible and they're still having to be professional and take ownership of their career. This episode is being released during Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And one of the goals of this podcast is to interview people from the communities we're celebrating during these DE&I celebration months. As a Taiwanese American woman, I'm curious if you felt there are, was a relationship between your cultural heritage and the sport you and your family were dedicated to throughout your life. Um, for sure. I mean, growing up in SoCal, um, one, I mean, there's a very uh, high percentage of Asian Americans that play tennis. Um, so, you know, especially at the recreational level, I was able to be inspired by other players that were playing. Um, as in my personal experience, 
that was now a while ago, as I was going up through the ranks, I would say I saw less and less representation. And um, I was lucky, you know, I grew up when Michael Chang had already been successful. So I had some type of role model um, that was from my community, but there wasn't a female role model that had as much visibility as Michael Chang did. I would say um, that was probably the Williams sisters for me because they grew up in SoCal like I did. They were coached by their their father, Richard. Actually, Richard was always really nice to me. I think he saw a similarity between his relationship and his daughters with my dad and his relationship with my sisters and I. Um, so I would say I was, a little, I was lucky that I had some role models to look up to. I had also a community that played at the grassroots level. Um, and then when I was a pro, this was also the time where there was a lot of Chinese and Taiwanese players that came up. Um, so some might remember Li Na, who won two slams, including the Australian Open. Um, there was players that won the, the Olympic gold, which really in doubles that really spearheaded the movement in China to build tennis in that country, which now is has an incredible investment in sport in general, not just tennis. Um, so as a pro, it was very interesting because um, I had to navigate, I felt this as a child, I had to navigate being, I felt like I was a child of two cultures, but like I was a child of traditional American culture and then I was a child of the Taiwanese culture. And my parents being immigrants were of this, the Taiwanese culture and I was living in an American culture. So in some ways that was challenging for me to try to figure out my own identity, plus add on the hyper-focus of tennis and not wanting that to be my full identity too. And then as a pro, um, I think it kind of came full circle because I, I very much appreciated that I had the Asian side in me because I could speak to the players. Um, I could identify with them culturally. I was still different. I would never be fully one of them, but um, you know, being able to embrace our differences, but, and also embrace our similarities was, um, was a very a special thing for me. We all know that representation matters. Did you have any role models you looked up to because uh, they looked like you, they were athletes or otherwise? Yeah, um, so my brother actually picked tennis when he was nine because he was naughty in school and his teacher told my parents that he needed to, you know, release his energy and, and suggested a sport. So he pitched tennis because there was a local tennis tournament um, going on in the section. And he saw a girl who actually ended up becoming top 100, and I believe she was top 10 in doubles, named Janet Lee. Mm. And Janet Lee is from SoCal. Um, she was also an incredibly good player. She was Taiwanese. Um, and I think her parents also spoke to my parents and encouraged them to take up the sport. So if it weren't for her, you know, my brother wouldn't have taken up the sport. And then my sisters and I would have never played. We've never gotten the opportunity to engage in the sport. Um, I would say that Michael Chang inspired our community because it was the first time an Asian American really achieved like the highest pinnacle of success in the sport of tennis. Mm -hmm. um, and then on a personal level, because they were female, um, Serena and Venus were very motivating to me. They grew up in SoCal. 
their dad coached them like my dad coached me. They were girls of color and they were a little bit of outsiders. And I felt like my sisters and I were outsiders. My dad didn't coach us in the traditional fashion. We didn't have enough money to take lessons all the time. We didn't have money to drive around and, and play, you know, have playing, playing opportunities with other players. So it was really just us three together all the time, playing together, training together. And it was um, somewhat unorthodox, which is very similar to the pathway that Serene and Venus had. Now, what do you love about your family's culture? Um, um, <laughs> I mean, it's That's hard to say because it's like, it's instilled in me. Um, I think that the Taiwanese um, and Asian culture in general usually instills um, a high focus on collectivist values. So putting the group first. So I think there's a lot of benefits to that. So um, it makes you more empathetic and makes you more thoughtful. Um, I, I think moderation is good too. So I think the American culture is more individualistic, which promotes, um, you know, self-esteem and self-care, which I think is also very important, but, um, you know, discipline, um, sacrifice, um, the food. <laughs> I love Taiwanese food. Um, you know, I think traditions are very important um, and heritage is very important and, and remembering those things and revering them and honoring them. I think I, I love these aspects of the Asian culture and, and you know, all other cultures have their own traditions and heritage and, and reverence. Um, and I think that it's very um, heartwarming. And I think it's very important that we remember where we, we've come from, who we are, you know, where our ancestors came from and what was important to them. And it helps us round ourselves out as people and, and figure out what who we want to be. Yeah, and it really just makes you a whole rounded person, right? And who you really are today. Um, and so you're now a member of the USTA National Board and president of the Asian American Pacific Islander Tennis Association. And that's so cool. We're so proud of you. Oh, thank you. And how do you hope to contribute to this to the sport in those roles? Um, so these two roles that I have, I've got quite a few different hats after I retired two years ago. Um, I also run a nonprofit called Serving a Pope. And so that's uh, providing tennis programs for underserved kids. And that's um, at the grassroots level. I also work as a consultant for the WTA. Um, so I do different things, but mostly player facing and program development. Um, so, and then USTA is, is very high level and uh, APIDA, the Asian American Pacific Islander Tennis Association is um, broad community based and has not just an advocacy component, but it does have an ad advocacy component to it. Um, so I really love the breadth of roles that I have because they are different views of the industry. Um, and particularly with USTA and APIDA, those are quite high level roles. Um, so with USTA, I feel very strongly about you know giving back to the sport. Um, I am a member that represents elite athletes on the board. Um, so using my expertise and my background of being a former player, um, also, again, I think 
having these other roles helps me become a better board member, better contributor. Um, but whenever you're looking at the higher levels, it's, you know, how can we make incremental change that can affect the majority of people? And I find that a very, um, a very deep responsibility, you know, I take it very seriously. Um, and with APITA the same, you know, really trying to affect change at the highest levels. Um, sometimes it takes a long time for that to happen. And being a tennis player, I am very impatient. We're very goal oriented, you know, you go from point A to point B, your goal is to try to get to this ranking or try to, you know, win a tournament or, you know, try to improve X, Y, Z. And that's not quite the case in, in these roles. But um, I think it gives me uh, a very unique perspective with my background to come in and and um, be a healthy contributor there. That's fantastic. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the Amer Asian American Pacific Islander Tennis Association, what it does, how you're involved, and the services you provide? Yeah, so um, we are very new. Uh, we, I believe, were officially incorporated earlier this year. So that's how new we are. The um, concept came about last year, and it really stemmed from um, not just myself, but a group of us that um, have made up the founding members and uh, board members and advisory board members that recognized um there wasn't a group or organization within the tennis industry that um, supported the Asian American community. And so really that's the impetus for forming the organization. Uh, we have three pillars. And the first is to celebrate API achievements. Um, the second is education and advocacy. And the third is to support a leadership pipeline. So our focus this year is to um, is to celebrate OPI achievements. So that means having an annual event. We're hopeful that we um, might have an AAPI day at the US Open. Um, but so like really the goal is to highlight and celebrate the achievements of past and current OPI players. Um, and then also engage in a few educational and advocacy opportunities. So, um, you know, even just me talking about this now is, is an incredible opportunity. The more that we can spread the word that this organization exists, that there's resources. Um, I've been working with the WTA. They have a really robust sports science department that has um, educational resources. So soon on our website, we'll have educational resources for the breadth of the tennis community from players and coaches um, to those that might want to start volunteering. Um, so trying to incrementally um, increase the amount of resources that we can to the Asian American community. Now, as we bring this interview to a close, I'd love to hear the single best advice you would receive, you received as a tennis player. Um, what was that? Um, whether that was when you were in the junior tournament or when you walked onto the Arthur Ashe Stadium. I mean, that one is so you had a hard. good experience. Like, I don't know where to begin, where to end. You're true champion. Thank you so, so much. I mean, I had already mentioned the importance of the team because even though this is an individual sport, you don't make it alone. Um, so I'd say the other component to that, which is individualistic, 
is controlling the things that you can control. And so that pertains to, you know, when you're on court and trying to deal with pressure and you're starting to freak out and you're like, I really, really want to win. You know, I'm up a set and four one and that's a dangerous place to be in because you're like, yeah, I really want to protect my lead. You know, controlling the things that you can control, which is you can control intention. And that might mean, okay, I'm going to try to hit this ball cross court and then I'm going to hit to the open court or I'm going to have positive self-talk. These are things that are intentional, but you can't control outcomes. So even you might say, I'm going to try to go cross court, but it might not go cross court, but at least you tried. So that's something you can control. Um, you can control attitude. Um, so same thing with self-talk, but you can, you know, slap your thigh, fist pump, jog quicker, you know, or slow yourself down, try to control the momentum of the match. You can control your attitude. Um, and, you know, off the court, this also applies, you know, when you're, let's say your goal setting, um, focusing on things that are not results oriented because those are things that you can't control, but are more process oriented. So today I'm going to work on my forehand technique and I'm going to really work on turning my shoulders as opposed to, I'm going to work on hitting 20 balls inside the court while also turning my shoulders because, you know, if we're working on improvement, the goal is to try to turn your shoulders, to try to get, you know, um, more power into the forehand and there it takes some time for that process um, to be executed before you can really see the results come into play. So um, in that regard, controlling the things that you control, I'd say is something you can apply at all times. Vanya, on behalf of the USDA Eastern family, I wanna thank you for sharing your tennis story with us. Uh, it's truly been an honor. You are a champion and you are a wealth of knowledge for everyone out there that's listening. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to be here. And I hope everyone comes out May 13th. Come and visit us and I'll be there. Fantastic. Everyone tune in next time to hear our tennis stories during Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And don't forget that May is National Tennis Month. Thanks for listening to Tennis Stories and we'll see you May 13th at Cunningham Tennis Center in Queens.